We've been turning, talking about discerning power, the ability to be discerning, able to be discerning in life. We've talked about discernment and just, justice, being prepared to face the situations that are coming upon the face of the earth. We've talked about discretion and alertness. Today we want to talk about decisiveness. We want to talk about what it is to be decisiveness, decisive as opposed to double-mindedness. Now let me talk to you about double-mindedness. Double-mindedness is uh, interesting because it, it has this whole idea of a lack of faith, doubt, produces double-mindedness. It's like strung between two places. And uh, decisiveness has this idea of faith. It's a focus. It's a one focus and you're able to move quickly because you have a faith or you have one focus. James chapter 1 verses uh, 2 to 8 says these words, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and let it be given to him. It says, but let him ask in faith, not doubting. Now notice the difference between the two. Faith, asking in faith, without the doubt. The question is, how are you in terms of your faith? Jesus says, when the Son of God comes again, will he find faith on the earth? He says, will he find people who are determinedly hanging on to him and believing that God is able to do all that he says he's doing? Will he find people who have made a decision to follow Jesus no matter what and have a heart after God and have faith toward God? Will he find that? Or will he find people who've been listening to everything that's coming through the newspaper, listening to everything that's coming through the, the news uh, media stands, listening to everything that's coming through education and saying, well, I don't really, did God really create, maybe they have, and, and, and start to pollute your mind so that you are caught and drawn by two things, doubting God, doubting his existence, doubting the, the validity of the word of God, questioning whether the word of God is the word of God, or maybe it's just some sort of story handed down, never really pressing in because you've been polluted by a world that says doubt, doubt. Where are you? Where's your faith? Where's your doubt? Is you, are, you, are you doubting now when you come to prayer or are you believing when you come to prayer? He says, let him ask in faith, not doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let that, not that man is supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." We're told about double-mindedness in James chapter 4, verse 8, too. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So double-mindedness is a pollution that gets into our minds. If you start to, start to waver in your thinking with regard to your faith in God, you need to have your heart cleansed from that wavering. You need to come before God and say, look, God, I, I do believe, but I've been listening to something that's getting into my head that's making me doubt you. It's making me doubt the, the things that I should believe. Cleanse my life. Purify my heart. Set me clean again so that I don't think this way anymore. And, and take it to God and pour it out before God and confess it. Ask him to cleanse you from your double-mindedness. There's one thing sure to cause you to fail, double-mindedness. When Jesus was on earth, he, he went to his own town, 
This is where he was raised. This is where he was brought up. And, and, and he walked in there and they said, oh, we know who you are. You're the son of Joseph and of Mary. Your brothers and your sisters are here with us now. And Jesus couldn't do very many signs in that place because they doubted him. There was no faith there. He was amazed at their lack of faith. You know, Jesus can do anything, you think. He's somehow limited by your ability and your faith. When you doubt him, he's limited and able to perform for you. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Faith is the thing that pleases God. Without faith, you cannot please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So Joshua, in, in, in Joshua 24, verses 15 to 16, Joshua calls the people to, together, and he wants to get from the, the people of Israel a real commitment that they're going to go on for God. And he says, is it, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which you were beyond the river, that means back in Egypt before you, when you, before you came into the promised land. If, if, you, if you're not happy with God, just go back to worshipping the, the, the gods that your fathers had in Egypt. Or the gods of the Amorites who's in the land you are living, you know, the gods that are around you, why don't you just follow them? But Joshua says to them, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's quite interesting, the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So they were right there and saying, well, now we're with you, Joshua, we're with you. But it didn't take long, which tells me something. To be decisive and follow God means that you have to make a decision to follow God every day. That if you don't make that decision to follow God every day, if you don't decide to set him alone in your heart as being the Lord and the controller of your life, if you don't make the decision every day to do that, what will happen is you will slowly drift away from your devotion to him. You will, you will slowly drift away from your love toward him. Little by little, you will just begin to drift away. You will miss your prayer time and your Bible reading and your, and your devotion to him one morning and you say, well, it doesn't really matter, but you know, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow you do it again, but the next day you miss. And so now you're missing. You're missing every second one. And you set a precedent. It's okay to miss that time with God. It's okay not to... And then all of a sudden you find your heart growing a little bit cold and you're watching a little bit more of TV than you would normally or watching a movie, going to a movie that you wouldn't normally have gone to see. And then it's just everything becomes okay that becomes sort of standard practice and you have drifted somewhat drifted somewhat from that decision to follow God this is not something that happens overnight this is something that happens slowly and gradually it's like a very slow escalator you stand on an escalator I went to the airport and uh, they changed uh, gates for me and I, had, I was down at gate 19 going to board the flight and then they said the, the, the flight is being boarded at gate 3 which is about a kilometre walk and I'm sitting there going I wish I'd known earlier so as I'm going along there's an escalator a flat escalator and you can stand on the escalator you know put your bag there and it just slowly just moves along well, life's like that, you know. An escalator is slowly moving along, except it's usually moving away from the gate that you should be boarding. 
So when you're standing on it, if you're walking, it's slow enough that you could actually make, you, that you're walking slowly forward, but if you ever stop, you just start to drift away. It's like there's a tide that just drifts us away from God if you ever stop your devotion to God. If you, just, you say, I didn't choose or decide not to follow Jesus, but you chose not to follow him today. You chose not to love him today. And while you didn't make one decision to not follow Jesus, you made a lot of little decisions that ended up in the same direction. You stopped and everything just kept moving further away from God. So I want to challenge you today. Here we have Joshua, and then they are saying, far be it from us that we should serve and forsake God and serve other gods. But by the time you got to the first Kings 18, 21, Elijah is now really frustrated. There are 400 prophets that Jezebel has locked up somewhere or have hidden themselves from Jezebel because she wants to kill them. And Elijah now has been summoned uh, by God to, to, to the valley to bring uh, some sort of decision before the people. And he says these words to the people. Now, this is the same, same crowd that had been around Joshua. It's the, the kids of those families. This is how far they'd come. And Elijah came unto the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? He says, How long will you be stuck between two positions? Serving God or serving Baal? How long are you sitting here going, oh, I, uh, I really don't know which way to do this. If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. They had drifted so far from God, they couldn't stand up and say, um, I'm following Jesus. They were sitting there saying, um, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm confused. I don't know what to believe anymore. There's too many voices talking to me. I mean, I listened to the teacher at school and she said, and then I listened to Mark when he preached and he said, but I don't know what to believe anymore. I'm stuck between two positions. It's interesting. Elijah just said, okay, all your gods, bring your, your prophets out. And so they brought the prophets, all the prophets of Baal came out, and there was a lot of them there, multitudes of them standing there. Well, we're going to have a test now, he says. He says, you guys go first. He says, what you need to do, he says, build an altar. He says, there's the bullet. Put, put. He says, and you do what you have to do, and whoever can light that fire up, that sacrifice up, without touching it, that's God. And so we're told that the, the prophets of Baal prepared the altar and they put the bull on top of the altar and they started doing their dance around the altar. They started praying and, 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 and Elijah's sort of mocking them. Or maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone to the toilet. Call out louder. He's not answering you yet. By lunchtime, they were frantic. They started to cut themselves, whip themselves and beat themselves till the blood gushed out of them. They thought, now maybe all this effort will produce, you know, some sort of... And they exhausted themselves in their effort to try and get this sacrifice to explode in flames. All day, human effort could not raise a single spark. 
Elijah came along and says, well, you've had a go. I've given you all dates. My turn now. And he built an altar with 12 stones, one for every tribe of Israel. And he put on it all the wood and he cut up the cow and bull and put it on the top. And he says, bring some water. Pour the water over it. He says, that's not enough water. Bring some more water. And he poured the water over it. That's still not enough. Bring some more water. And they flooded not only the altar, all around the altar. So there's water everywhere, all over it. And then he stood back and said, God, you do what you have to do. And God answered from heaven and the thing exploded into flames. The whole thing exploded into flames and it licked up the altar, it licked up the flames around and it just destroyed everything. And the people fell on their faces and they said, God is God. That's what you're waiting for, isn't it? You've got such to a place that you're waiting for something like, if I saw something miraculous take place, if I saw the heaven peel open and Jesus come riding through on a horse saying, hey, here I am, I'd believe then. But that's the problem. It'd be just too late then. If you saw that and you weren't ready for that, it would be too late for you. Better you believe now because of what you learned and because of the way that Jesus took your life and, and because of the fact, sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Better you believe now than you fall on your face later and say, oh, he is God, but be on the wrong side of the ledger. I mean, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee. Even Obama. Even the Pope, every knee will bow before God. Every knee shall go down and say, you are God. Even the devil will get down there. You are God, they will say. It won't save them, but they will make that declaration in the last day. And God will make his judgment. We are like that. I mean, John talks to us in, in Revelation chapter 3 about being caught between two positions. He talks about the church at Laodicea, and he, says, he said to them, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right, there are, these are the words of the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. Two positions. He says, I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, stuck in the middle, neither cot nor cold, I'm about to spit you, spew you, vomit you out of my mouth. See, indecisiveness, not being able to make a decision for God one way or the other, produces you to be warm, not hot or cold. When it comes to moral decisions you have to make, ethical dilemmas that you get caught in in school, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? You get caught between two places. If I tell the truth, I'll be hated. If I tell a lie, I'll be loved. If I say nothing, I can stay in the middle here and not be exposed. 
you get caught neither hot nor neither cold caught in the middle it's a it's a terrible place when we stand in the middle we are too frightened to be bad here's the bad thing you can do it it's available to you no one will ever find out you can take a step into the bad and live happily with your pleasure take a couple of steps into the bad and it really doesn't matter just please yourself do as you like and stuff everybody else but you're too frightened to do that because you're scared you're scared of people finding out that you're bad so you want to stay here just lukewarm kind of thinking bad but not doing bad so much that people will see that you really are that bad it's a terrible place you sit here and then on the right hand side which is good you say i really admire those people who do good i really admire that person who's given up all to follow jesus i really admire that person who lays down their life for jesus and dies and is is persecuted for their faith i i'm reading the fox's book of martyr and to see them die for jesus oh isn't that amazing but you know what i'm too scared to stand up at school and witness for my faith because they may reject me I'm too scared to say too many things because it may become hard for me if they know that I'm a true believer in Jesus. So I stay in the middle. In the middle is safe. Safe for who? Safe when? In the middle is safe for you now. But it's not safe for you when God comes back. Because he says in the middle... I will spew you out of my mouth. There's no safety sitting in this position, stuck between two positions. You have to be hot or cold. You have to live for the devil full-heartedly and embrace hell with both hands or live to God absolutely and embrace him with everything you've got. Unless you lose your life, you will never find it. Unless you're willing to die, you will never find new life in Christ. So that's indecision. That's double-mindedness. What is decisiveness? What does decisiveness look like? It's having the power and quality to decide, putting an end to the controversy about crucial or most important things. It's like, okay, I'm going to make a decision about my life now and I'm going to make one decision and it's going to be the decision that I make. We hope that when you decide to get married, that that decision of marriage is the thing that you make for the end of your life. It's like, um, okay, I'm making a decision to marry Auntie Jenny. Auntie Jenny, will you marry me? She says, I'll marry you. I make a decision to marry her. She makes a decision to marry me. That's the last decision we have to make like that. We don't have to make that decision anymore. We're married. And we say vows like, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to death do us part. That's the, that's the words that we use. 
It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if we're well or sick. It doesn't matter if things go good or things go bad. We are together. We have made that decision to write this thing together till one of us dies or we both die. That's our choice and that's our decision. You don't sort of start into the marriage and say, well, three years into the marriage, I think I want to sign another contract because it's harder than what I thought. You already made a decision for the hard times. We come over here and say, we've got lots and lots of money now. And I look at you and I think to myself, well, you know, I've got lots of money. How can I really afford something better than that? Stop it. You made a decision with regard. It doesn't matter. You don't leave it now that you've got money to get something better. How often does that make? How often does that happen? People, they make a decision. They say before the, the minister, they say before the courts, till death to his part. And then they only mean, you know, if uh, everything sort of goes that way. The decisions we make in life are meant to be permanent decisions. So you're meant to think very soberly about those decisions. Jesus said, before you ask to come and follow me, before you even think about following me, he said, you better count the cost. He says, unless you hate your mother and sister and brother and hate your own life, he says, you can't be my disciple. He says, if you're going to go for a battle and you see somebody coming with 10,000 people in front of you, you only got 5,000 people in front of you, and you say, can we win? Can we? You better make a choice before you go in there. Otherwise, if you get there and you start fighting and you look like you're going to lose and you quit, then it's going to be shameful. You've got to start to build a house and you start building it and you think, I've got lots of money. I'll build this beautiful edifice. I'll tell everybody I'm going to build this huge, great big house. And I get there and my money runs out halfway through. He says, you better ascertain how much it's going to cost you so you don't look like a fool because you can't get the... He said, before you even start to follow me, before you get married to me, said Jesus, you better make a decision to go right to the end. Don't start unless you're wedding to finish. I'll try Jesus. I'll try Jesus if any, and if he blesses me, then I'll keep on going. And if he doesn't bless me, I'll try something else. It's not about trying Jesus. It's about loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's characterized by displaying no or little hesitation. It's resolutely determined to keep on going with Jesus. It's choosing Jesus over the world, the flesh and the devil, even though you'd really like to choose some of the devil's things sometimes because they look really, really good. It's choosing Jesus over pleasure, pleasure and status, fame and riches. I remember when God spoke to me when I was a young man, I, I would pioneered a church in the, in, in the town of Lawson Town of Lawson's a, a small town on the going up from Sydney in the Blue Mountains. And when I was in the Bible college, uh, some students were going to pioneer a church in Lawson because they thought that that would be a nice thing to do. And I remember them asking me, "Look, you've had some pastoral work that you've been doing." He said, "Would you like to be the pastor of the church that we pioneer in Lawson?" And I thought, "Oh yeah, thank you for asking me." <laughs> I went down to Lawson and I did some statistics. There's 3,000 people living in Lawson. There's a little town uh, with, with an IGA in it, you know, and a pub in it. 
and a community hall in it. That's where we'll have church and, and a train station. That's about it. Not much more than that. And then this very interesting thing, discussion went on in my head. What shall I choose? Shall I choose to limit myself and nail myself into a coffin with only 3,000 people? You know, I'm much better than that. You know, I could preach to a church of a couple of thousand. I could do that quite comfortably. I think, you know, there's not room in this place for a church for 2,000. Statistically, there's only 3,000 people here. Even if I won the whole of the, the land to the Lord, there'd only be a church of 3,000. That's quite limiting, limiting isn't it? I don't think I'll choose the choice to be a pastor of the church because there's not enough growth potential in it for me. You know, I'm bigger than that. God ought to know I'm bigger than that. I think I'm bigger than that. And God says to me, Mark, if I decide that you should go to outside Burke in the bush to a family of five, minister there to the day you die just to five people if that's my determined will for you would you follow me if I determine that you only minister to five people all your life and then you died would you obey me you know when I asked to follow Jesus I didn't say to Jesus, I'll follow you only if you give me big things, status-filled things, things that would give me fame. I said, you know, I'll follow you wherever you lead me. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And I said, God, do you want me to be a pastor in Lawson? He says, do it. And so we did it. And we led a lot of people to the Lord and God was good to us. And those people stayed a little time in the church at Lawson. A little time they stayed there and then they moved out. And there's ministers in, in a lot of churches down in Sydney and out throughout Australia now who were born again in our church and went on to go into the ministry from that place. Why? Because someone was faithful to follow Jesus in spite of what they deemed to be, whether it was good or bad. Just follow Jesus. He knows best. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, we read these words. And by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to endure the passing pleasures of sin. Here's the same thing happening with uh, Moses. He's been raised for 40 years in, a, in a, a palace, and he's been given everything that his soul and his flesh could ever want. You know, he's got power, he's got prestige, he's got the whole thing. It's all available to him. But he's chosen to identify himself with God's people. He's chosen to recognize that he is not going to leave his nation, he's going to stay with his nation. So he's chosen to endure the ill treatment of those who are oppressed by the Egyptians than by being the oppressor. He took it into his own hands and he killed an Egyptian thinking that everybody else was going to understand that he was with them. And they didn't understand that he was with them. So he took off into the wilderness for another 
40 years. You get worried about God's timeline. You think, maybe God has to do it before I reach 18 or 19. I look at the movies and I, I see these guys who are standing up there and they're singing and they, they reach the peak of their, their successfulness and they're in their mid-20s. You know, they, they've got churches of a thousand and they're just touching 29 years old. How do you get that? You know, that great success. You just stop it now. Don't make comparisons of yourself with everybody. Just ask yourself one big question. Did Jesus ask me to do something and am I doing what he asked me to do? That's the only question you need to ask. That's the only question you have to answer. Stop comparing yourself to somebody else. There are no comparisons in the kingdom of God. The comparison, am I being obedient or am I being disobedient? So for 40 years, Moses wandered around in the wilderness until God showed up and said, I've got a plan for you. And you would have been reading that through your reading now. You would have been reading how he saw God in a burning bush. And how God said, go back to my people now and tell Pharaoh, this is what I want. To let my people go. Oh, I don't think I can do that. I can't even speak well, let alone lead people well. And God takes this man. This man who now is small in his own eyes and uses him mightily to show his splendor. Takes him another 40 years to the border of a land, a new land, and then the people are crying out for water and God says to him, speak to the rock for it to deliver the water. Before he had struck the rock and God said, speak, to the rock but he was angry and because he was angry he struck the rock with a and God said the only question that you had to answer was did you obey me Moses I'm not interested in how you got the water to come out the rock I'm not interested in what you thought was the right thing to do the only question that you had to answer correctly is did you obey me you see, we get in our mind what we think God wants to see. God in his mind says, all I want you to do is obey me. You think, oh, in 10 years I want to be, in 20 years I want to be, and we get these stupid visions of what we think we might be doing in 10 or 20 years. You have no idea. You might be hit by a bus this afternoon. Goal setting is folly when it comes to thinking about your life. You can reach and attain goals in God if you obey Him when He speaks to you. If you obey Him today when He talks to you today to do something small, then tomorrow when He speaks to you to do something else and you obey Him, He'll take you someplace else. And then 10 years' time, you'll be exactly where He wants you to be because you obeyed Him every day, every day of the journey to the 10 years away. The biggest problem is you think that God's got to jump through some sort of hoop to produce something for you because you're worth it. You're not worth it. You have to obey Him. And when you are faithful in the small things, then He will entrust you bigger things. The question is, are you obeying Him? Have you made that decision? I will obey you, even if it hurts me. I will obey you, even if it means I have to 
to put away my flesh, I will obey you. It doesn't matter what you ask you to do. The most important thing is to obey you. I, I can't be fearful of men. I can't be fearful of women. I can't be fear. I have to obey you. I just have to obey you because obedience is the desired love that we have for God. When we show our decision for God by our love for God, then it's amazing. There's a, a person in the scripture who really shows us this beautifully, and it's the, the life of Ruth. Ruth is a beautiful example of this. She's so beautiful, I, uh, we use Ruth's words in our, in our marriage. Jen and I quoted these words that Ruth quoted. I'll tell you the story about Ruth. There's a woman called Naomi and, a, and her husband called Imelech, I think his name was, they had two sons, so it was quite a good little static. And they decided to travel to the land of the Amorites to do some business, Moabs, the Moabites, to do some business there. So they went there and they, they traveled from Jerusalem, Beth, uh, Judah, the place where they were living, to this new place. And when they got to this new place, Imbilimelech died. That was, Dad died. So it left mum, Naomi, with the two sons. Now the two sons got married to two Moabite girls. Ruth was one, and, and Oprah, was, Oprah was, the, was the second one, I think. And when they were there, they got married, they had no children, and the two sons died. Well, that's calamity on calamity on a calamity. I mean, just think about that. Three women bound together in a family, all the men of the family are dead. Dad died, and the, the brothers died. There's no men left in the family. Naomi is distraught. She says, um, who's going to look after us? Back then it was the guys who looked after the girls. That was the way it was. You know, they didn't have the opportunity to open a business on the, and to, to do business and trade. And they, they, Naomi says, I'm going back to Bethlehem, Judah. I'm going back to my people because I know they'll look after me. Then she turns to Opa and... Um, to Ruth and says, now you go, you go your way, go back to your families, go back to your mums, and God bless you. So Oprah went back, but the Bible tells us that Ruth claved or clinged to Naomi. She loved Naomi. She was distressed. She loved her mother-in-law. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Imagine loving your mother-in-law that much that you cleave to her. And she tells you to go back to your mum and you decide not to go back to your mum. You, you want to stay with your mother-in-law. That must have been, that, Naomi must have been some sort of woman. She must have been some sort of godly woman for this woman Ruth to cleave unto her. To say, I don't want it. These are, the, these are the words she says. And then said, she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has, this is Naomi speaking, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you and turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Or where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything, but death separates me and you. That's a good vow, isn't it? That's why Jen and I said, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where you stay, that's, we used that in our wedding. That was our commitment. 
that God really deal with me if anything should separate us but death. That's a powerful decision you're making right there. You're making a decision to commit to a person, to stay with a person no matter what because you love them so much. And that's the decision that we're called to make with the Lord. Jesus, I want to follow you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. The family of God is my family, not my blood and flesh, but the family of God. These are my brothers and sisters. And that's the commitment I'm making. That's what I'm, and, and far be it for me that anything could come between us, Jesus, but death, you know, and death I'll be coming to you, but I don't want anything to separate us. Ever. Such a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Such a beautiful choice. Decision making is it's the choice to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's the choice to follow Him. And you make that choice and you turn away from everything else. And that's the choice that you make. Now, I don't know where you're at or where your decision is at. Some of us think that, you know, to love God is to feel something for God. And when the guys come and play and they sing beautiful songs to us and we sing lovely musical songs or we listen to we can feel our emotions surge within us, you know. Ah, oh, just to be, ah, oh, with Jesus. And we are emotionally connected with Jesus. But when you turn the music off, and there's no violins playing in the background, and you open the window and the cold air of unbelief blows on you, and or the open the furnace and the heat of oppression and persecution blow on you, how are you feeling now? You want to move to someplace more comfortable? We're told in the Fox's Book of Martyr of a man who, who he looked at the being burnt to death and he thought, oh, I can't, oh, he, he couldn't handle that whole idea. He didn't like that idea at all, being burnt to death. And so he, he decided to sign a paper that said that he would recant from his beliefs in Jesus. So he signed it. And then after he signed it, he felt, oh, I did the wrong thing. I, I, did, I denied Christ. Oh, and so he signed another paper that says, I recant from recanting. So they took him out and they burned him. But as he was standing there in the flames being burned, he held his hand, the hand that signed that paper the first time, out into the flames, it says. And he, he held it in the flames with great disdain until it was just nothing but a stub of burnt. And he says, that, he says, what I do with the decision to turn away from Jesus. Friends, where is your commitment It's the first time the devil comes and says, are you going to give in? Or have you made a decision to follow Jesus? 